Our scripture reading for today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, and verses 23 through 34. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came to them, much annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming that in Jesus there is the resurrection of the dead. So they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and they numbered about 5,000. The next day their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem, with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. When they had made the prisoners stand in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who was sick and are asked how this man had been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. After they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they raised their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them, it is you who said by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers have gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in this city, in fact, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, The place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, For as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Um, Help me to tell the truth this morning. And Lord, may we receive the truth in us, and may it set us free. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, Yesterday morning, how many of you set your alarms for the coronation? (laughs) 2 a.m. 
King, yes, King Charles III's coronation. Oh, some of you are just now hearing about this. Did you? Yeah. My, I was at my grandparents' house yesterday, and my grandma was watching that. See? Really? <laughs> Anybody else? Not too many. Some of you are just now hearing about it, like right now. Um, I can remember a time when, when what the, whatever the royal family was doing was a big deal even here in the States. I, I remember hearing about how my parents stayed up to watch um, Charles and Diana's wedding. I can remember, um, I can actually remember where I was when Princess Diana died. Um, and so there was a time when this was a big deal, even to Americans and to the rest of the world. Now, not so much. Now you have a whole lot of preachers this morning, especially in the Church of England, preaching sermons about why everyone should still think this is important, why everyone still thinks it's relevant, and going through all the symbols of the coronation and saying, see, it's, it's, it's really significant, you should care about this. And a whole lot of people in Britain saying, ah, oh, I think we're done with this. I think we're done. And you can see why. I mean, there's gold carriages, uh, there's a whole bunch of symbols and signs that like don't make any sense to anybody. Over a million dollars spent on the coronation alone. Um, uh, you, you can see the tension and the conflict in this whole thing. Uh, I'm not going to be one of those preachers that talk about why we should care about the king's coronation. Um, but I think it's interesting to talk about because it reminds me, it's sort of an analogy of the way a lot of people think of Christianity now. You know, Christianity had its heyday. It was a really big deal back in the day. And there's all kinds of symbols associated with it. And preachers basically get up every Sunday to try to prop this thing up so that you guys still care. And you keep caring about it. And then through the week, you're like, I don't know if this is relevant to me. I don't know if it matters. And then you come back on Sunday and the preacher's like, it matters, it matters, it matters. And, and so that's, that's a lot of how we, we, think of, we think of Christianity. And even in terms of Jesus, we think this way sometimes. Like, like you have, um, you know, you, so you got Charles, and, and Charles, uh, you know, he's got like seven crowns at least. Uh, he has a fur cape that he wears. Um, he has uh, untold wealth at his disposal. Um, and, and, you know, he's holding a scepter and an orb, which represents power and universality of the whole world. And then, like, at the heart of it is just a guy in his mid-70s who, like, maybe he has a doctor's appointment tomorrow, and uh, when he drinks milk, his tummy feels weird. And, like, so, so I think sometimes we think of Jesus this way as, like, you know, basically, like, a really nice guy, like, good teacher, super friendly, uh, very helpful, but then all this other stuff has been sort of piled onto him as, like, oh, well, this is... That, that, you know, there's, you know, that we've added all this other stuff to Jesus, but at the heart, you know, Jesus really was just like a regular guy, like like Charles probably is, a regular bloke, we should say. And um, I, the so the the in, in biblical studies, this is actually a long-running debate, and it's the and they call it the debate between the historical Jesus and the Christ of tradition. So the Jesus of history, the Christ of tradition, and so there's this. There's a debate going about, you know, is it, is it just, who, who is the Jesus of history without all the tradition? And that kind of thing. And I, it is an interesting debate. I think it's definitely died down in, in recent years. It was a lot bigger 
um, decades ago. Um, but it's still, it's still a question that sometimes gets raised. And I think it gets raised by ordinary folks, actually, more often. Um, because ordinary folks do generally have this feeling as time goes by that, you know, is Christianity like a thing for my parents? Is it a thing for my grandparents? Is it really a thing that we even care or think about anymore? Why do we have to keep, like, associating spring and new life with Jesus? Or, you know, can, like, when, when does this thing get done being propped up? Well, if, if it is true, if it is true that what we have is, a, is a, a regular guy from tradition that all this other stuff got kind of piled onto, um, the Christ came later and it started off with Jesus, the regular bloke. If that is true, then we, 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 what we would expect to find in the earliest documents are examples of, of his followers figuring out how to make this work. Examples of his followers basically regrouping after his death and saying, we got to come up with an explanation for this and just taking like a beat to, to regroup and plan. We would expect them at least to head back up to Galilee where it's way safer and not stay in Jerusalem. We would expect them to take a, a period of time, like minimum, like a year to just build up followers again and to get the story straight. Instead, what we have in, in this, this story in Acts that we read this morning in the whole book of Acts is like completely opposite. Completely opposite. We, I mean, it's, it's hard to, because we started a new book. You know, you go from the Gospels to Acts and you think a lot of time to, has, has passed by. It has not. A lot of time has not passed by. We're less than two months since Jesus was executed by the state. Less than two months. And what are the disciples doing? They have not split. They're still around. They're going to the temple, wide open in front of everybody every day, doing their thing. It is kind of astonishing. If you've just lost your friend to a brutal execution, there would at minimum be some trauma. At minimum, there would be a little bit of hesitation, maybe some stress or something like that. But instead, we get Peter calm as a cucumber, and he gets arrested. He gets arrested. So let's look at this. Um, he, we talked about last week. This is a continuation of what we talked about last week. So we talked about last week how he, um, there's a healing, and this, this man gets healed, and then everybody's sort of an up in arms about it, and there's a, there's a bit of a concern about the healing, um, by what power and that kind of thing. And now, now Peter and John are in a very awkward situation, a very familiar situation. A group of people, the, precisely the same group of people who have conspired to execute Jesus are the same people who arrest Peter and John and put him in jail that night. So far, it's the exact same thing that's happened to Jesus. The exact same thing. Peter and John have no reason to suspect that anything is going to go differently. They have no reason to suspect that this is going to be anything other than... Um, uh, we have a translator here this morning, so the, just so you know. Thank you, David, for translating. I appreciate it. Just so, just, I should have mentioned it earlier in case you were wondering why there's whispering going on. So, um, so they, should, they should expect the exact same thing to happen. 
Jesus got arrested and killed. He was the ringleader. Why wouldn't they go ahead and wipe out all of his followers next? That makes perfect sense. And so they're arrested. They're put in jail. They spend the night in jail. They don't get killed, amazingly. And then the next morning, they're brought in, uh, in front of the whole Sanhedrin, which is like the, um, it's the ruling body of the time. They're the ones that are connected to Rome. Rome's given them power to run the local affairs. And so they get in front of the Sanhedrin, and Sanhedrin wants to question them about what they're up to. So they start questioning them, and, and the only thing they really care about is power. They say, by what power have you done this? By what power have you healed this man? They really don't care about anything else other than power. Um, and Peter tells the truth. He tells them, despite the highly probable reality that he's probably going to get killed, he tells them the truth that not only have they used the power of Jesus to heal this guy, but this is this guy Jesus we're talking about is precisely the guy that you guys executed. So, I mean, this is bull, right? Like, he's, he's not uh, dancing around. He's not, um, he's not trying to make nice with them. He's not like, I'll do my thing, you do your thing. He says, no, actually, um, that guy you executed has been resurrected from the grave, and, um, and now we're healing people in his power, and his power is completely separate from your power. Okay. Why, what, 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 what does this have to do with the way we understand Christianity today? Um, we've been talking for several, re several weeks about this whole idea of resurrection and what resurrection actually means. And now we're looking at what the possibility of the resurrection actually means in a group of people and how it changes a group of people. And the way it changes a group of people the way, it, the way it even, I want to say, creates a group of people is precisely the opposite of what we see in a coronation of a king. Instead of some shared fiction, some shared story that we all sort of get behind, we're not entirely sure if it's true, but it brings us together, the resurrection ends up being a new reality that changes absolutely everything. And we're all like iron filaments attracted to the magnet. We all kind of come together around this new reality. Not a shared fiction, not a shared story, but an actual change in reality. And the first way that things change is now we have the ability to tell the truth. People in power never, are, are never in proximity to truth, right? Because they can't tell the truth because they might lose their power. And people can't tell the truth to them because they might be in trouble. This particular group of people are definitely not interested in the truth. I said this was called the Sanhedrin. The major group of people who make up the Sanhedrin is a group called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were elite priests, basically, very fancy priests, the kinds of priests who would get asked to the coronation. And one of the things that sets this, uh, Sanhed or the Sadducees apart is that they don't believe in the resurrection. Um, the resurrection is not a new doctrine. It's been in Jewish thought for a really long time, in Jewish belief. Um, but the Sadducees deny it. And it makes sense that their power is connected to denying the resurrection because the resurrection is about a future hope. But if you don't have a future hope, what's left? 
If you don't have a belief in what could happen down the road, what's left for you? All that's left is now. And what matters now is who has the most power. That's what matters. And so you're never going to tell the, the Sadducees the truth because they could, they could end you. And they're, even if they did start believing in the resurrection, they're not going to say they believe it because that could put into question their power. And so Peter comes along and he's willing, to, he's willing to say the truth about Jesus because he believes in the resurrection, because he believes in a power that's greater than what the Sadducees have, what the Sanhedrin has, what anybody has. Um, we have a, a young, young people's Bible study uh, that meets on Wednesdays at our house. And we did a little exercise this week. We said, um, what takes more power? You know, um, I can't remember exactly how we did it, guys, but um, it was something like, what takes more power, to be a principal or to be the mayor? Is it pro probably the mayor. Okay, what takes more power, to be the mayor or the governor? Governor. Governor or president? President. President or come back from the grave and overcome death? <laughs> Probably overcoming the grave. Yeah, right. We, we forget this about resurrection. It's inherently political. Not partisan, not partisan, but it's inherently political. So Caesar should have been shaken in his shoes when there was a resurrection. And anybody who has power, any form of power, whether you're the head of a family or the head of a nation, whatever, whatever your power is, you are always kept in check by this one particular fact that there is someone who has power over death and you don't. And if you ever go against that guy, you might be in trouble. So Peter's, Peter knows that guy. Peter's been forgiven by that guy. Peter has a relationship with the guy. And so he's free to tell the truth no matter what happens. That's the first thing that happens to a community when the resurrection is at the heart of it. This truth telling that's now possible continues on as the disciples return to their friends, they get together with all their friends, they worship together. And by the way, worship, uh, you know, a really good definition of worship is telling the truth about God. So they've told the truth to the Sanhedrin and now they're telling the truth about God with each other. And then in their prayer, they have a really interesting prayer that they all pray together. And in their prayer, they see how God has taken the absolute worst thing that can happen. His son being executed by the state. They take, God takes that worst thing that you can imagine, tortured, humiliated, shamed, dishonored, and turns it in to the best thing that could ever happen. The peak of history, the, the climax of God's story with the world, the revelation of the glory of God. It's astonishing. And what we see in their prayer is not just the idea that love wins in the end, that life is awful and then one day everything works out fine and you just need to hang on as tightly as you can until you get there. Uh, what we see in their prayer is that God takes all the events, um, all, all the things that are messed up, all the things that are confusing, all the things that are unfair and unjust, all the oppression, God takes it all and repurposes it into glory, repurposes it into a new heavens and a new earth. He repurposes it into a divine comedy, into an adventure. That's another form of truth. It's the truth about history, the truth about time, the truth about events. 
What's the truth about the bad things that have happened to you? That God is not going to neglect them. God's not going to forget about them. He's going to turn them into something. Surprising. And then the last thing we get to see here, and this is all just a snapshot. This is not a comprehensive view of the resurrection community. It's a snapshot, but there's plenty in the snapshot. Um, the last thing that we see is, is um, the truth sets them free. The truth sets them free. Um, no longer do they have a tight grip on wealth. They're free of it. They're free of it. All that's happened is that just as the resurrection drains the power from the Sanhedrin, it drains the power from the Caesar, drains the power from Rome, drains the power from everything else, it also drains the power from wealth. Like a movie going from color to black and white. What we don't see here is them sitting down to work out some elaborate theory about market forces and what that's all about. You know, there's no, there's no ideology here for, for that. They don't work that out. All, it's, it's quite simple, actually. They just, they just see someone that they love deeply and need, and they say, you know, i got this wheelbarrow full of cash. Could this be helpful? I hear it. It's all yours. You know? Or um, your house is cold? Let's, let's fix the leaks with uh, 20s. You know, I mean, so it's a whole different idea of wealth. So, so whatever, whatever mystical powers that it had, whatever magical abilities that it seemed to carry with it, are now gone. And, and, and now they can just use it as a tool to help out their friends. It's all a snapshot, but I think it offers more than enough to be able to see that, that all the sermons... For Christianity over the last 1,990 years, all the vestments, all the the, 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 the the humble buildings like ours and the great cathedrals, all the wars, the kings, the king, the queens and the councils, all of it, all of it is new. All of it is something that has never happened before, but it's it's a result of something that's never happened before. And we may get off track, and we may lean too much in the institutions, and we may lean too much into the vestments. I mean, I, I mean I'm not a vestment guy, but I do have a stole. You know what a stole is? It's like a thing you wear like this. Um, I, I have a very nice vestment from Ed, actually. I, 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 yes, yes. Um, so, so, you know, so all this stuff sort of grows and builds. And yeah, and sometimes it maybe grows a little too much. Yes, we, we, can, we can all. Uh, but it all begins in, this, in this, 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 this surprising new thing that has never happened before. It all starts with a strange rustle of grave clothes on a morning. It all starts with the unusual sound of a large stone moving. An uncannily familiar call from the beach. And a simple meal given in thanks. What does all that mean? It means we can tell the truth, even to power, because the king is risen with healing in his wings. It means we can hope in darkness and oppression because the king is making all things new. And it means that we are free to love and give generously because the king invites us to his feast where we will receive more than we can imagine. 
And that's, all of that is just the beginning of what it could possibly mean. So it's not mainly about the meaning, it's about the event. It's not a coronation, it's a revelation. So, as a people of the resurrection, let us be free to care for one another, and let us be free to tell the truth about ourselves, about history, about the world. Because the king is risen, long live the king. Creator, Redeemer, and King, we give you thanks with our whole lives this morning, with all of our souls. Thank you for freeing us. Thank you for inviting us into the new life of the resurrection. And so, in that hope, we pray that you will set all captives free and proclaim the year of your, of your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. May the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. And may he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.